Hello, I'm Cora Hiltz, the co-founder of Rev en Vert, and this is the Rev Podcast. I'm so excited to have my first guest on the podcast that's going to be talking about food and her opinions on the most sustainable way to be growing it, consuming it, and dining out. I think that food is one of the biggest things we think about when it comes to a sustainable lifestyle. And even further, it relates so directly to our personal health and that of our planets. This discussion is incredibly important to Rev Envers, and we talk about what we are eating all the time in the Rev office. So I'm very excited to be speaking with the woman who just won the Female Chef of the Year Award here in London. My guest is Sky Gingel, an Australian native who has been making waves with her cooking ever since she moved to England. She began what has become an incredibly illustrious career at Petersham Nurseries before starting her own restaurant, Spring, which has been often noted as one of London's most sustainable and beautiful places to dine. Most recently, she has become the culinary director at Heckfield Place, where she oversees a biodynamic farm and encourages locality and seasonality in all the food prepared there. We talk about her journey not just with food, but also truly sustainable creating, and her most recent achievement of becoming the UK's first restaurant to entirely ban single-use plastics. I feel so excited by all those young people out on the street, by Greta Thunberg, by Extinction Rebellion. I feel that I think this change is coming. Hi, Sky. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> You're the first person that we have on speaking about food. And I think this is so important because I think it's it's at the crux of almost everything when it comes to talking about sustainability. And it's, I think, been a real forerunner in the conversation, you know, way before fashion or beauty or, or travel, the other things we're kind of discussing. This has really been something that's gotten people's attention in terms of sustainability, I would say. I think definitely it's been part of a conversation, organic, local, seasonal, but I, uh, which is fantastic, but I don't think much change has happened. I know that you've been working in food for many years now, and I'm really excited to hear kind of about where this journey has led you, particularly when it comes to sustainability within the industry. So I'd love for you to just give us a bit of a background on how your life is involved in this way. And I know you're from Australia, how you ended up in England, where you started, etc., etc. Okay. This is my 38th year in food this year. And so it's been... Um, it's been a long time now. But I grew up in Australia. I grew up in Sydney, um, had a really pretty idyllic childhood, 1970, in the 70s in Australia, kind of barefoots, feet, feet, sunshine, quite a lot of freedom. I grew up in not particularly a foodie family um, in terms of um, like being great cooks or kind of amazing cooking at home or a grandmother who was an incredible cook. Or, But I grew up in um, a family that where food was really important because it was macrobiotic, okay. which is a traditional Japanese way of eating. Um, it was headed by two men, George Asawa and Misho Kushi, and it's um, it's a kind of healthful uh, way of eating, I suppose. Uh, and so that was torturous growing up like that at home. Um, Can you I, just tell us really quickly, like what it means to have a macrobiotic diet? I think you probably hear a little bit about it now. Um, it was quite big in the 1970s. And uh, so what it is, is it's um, a 60% grain intake. So you only eat, you eat lots of pulses and grains. You eat very little fat. So no olive oils, no butters, no dairy. You only eat in a 500 square mile radius. So you only eat the food that's kind of grown near you and is sort of in season. Uh, lots of things are off the table, like tomatoes and potatoes and um, 
very little fruit, almost no fruit, actually. So it was a very brown diet. It involved a lot of brown rice, a lot of umeboshi plums, a lot of kind of sort of green vegetables cooked for a really long time in a pressure cooker. Um, bit, it does sound a bit torturous. It was, it was quite torturous, you know, especially when it was inflicted on you. You know, it felt like it was inflicted on us. And every time we went out of the house, we'd like eat like you know, finger buns, caramel koalas, like anything that we could that was not kind of macrobiotic. And so food was really important to me in terms of health. And I grew up believing that. I believe that you were what you ate. I believe that you could cure anything through diet. So I didn't grow up with a kind of um, the idea that food was delicious and um, nourishing through pleasure, but it was more a vehicle to keep you strong and healthy. Um, so that was kind of my experience of food at home. And then um, I left school, um, started a law degree, got a job washing up in a little restaurant in Sydney and um, fell in love with working in the restaurant and left law after the first year and went moved to Paris to go to a cookery school there and then lived there for three years, worked in Paris after I finished school uh, and then came to London in probably 1983 um, and uh, it's sort of gone on from there really I suppose. So I think my first job was probably when I was about 18 in a kitchen, 17 or 18 actually and I've stayed in food ever since that first job washing up. Uh, lots of different things over the years I've done. You know, I, I did a lot of restaurant work. Then I had small children and I came out of restaurants for a little while um, and did writing and teaching and some, some, a lot of private work and then went back into a restaurant when my youngest child was seven and that was in 2004 and that was Petersham Nurseries. Perfect. Well, that's where I wanted to kind of pick up because okay. I feel like a lot of people now, especially in the UK, are very familiar with Petersham Nurseries yeah. as sort of this really innovative destination for a different way of consuming food. Um, and I know there it was always sort of quite a conscious way of doing things, or it seems like it has been just due to the fact that it's very natural. It seems like you guys are growing or were growing a lot of the progress produce itself there. So can you tell us a little bit about your time at Petersham and how that started to shape things to come? Yeah, so I suppose um, uh, Petersham is owned by two, um, a couple called Gail and Francesco Bollioni, and I had known them for quite a long time. And they live in this beautiful house in Richmond. At the end of their garden was a nursery that had um, been running as a little kind of, so it came up for sale. Francesco decided to buy it, not really because he had any thought about it, except it was uh, probably incredibly cheap. You couldn't build on it. It was in a conservation area. And in a way, I think it just made his whole, uh, he had more land and it, it seemed like a kind of very, a no-brainer. Yeah. Um, so he bought it and then he asked me to come down and he said, look, I've just bought this nursery. What do you think I should do? I was thinking maybe we'll have some afternoon tea here or just do something. It was a completely covered in cement. It was kind of these um, three white rickety greenhouses. It was running, it just sold kind of geraniums and pelagoniums and there was no plan. Yeah. So it wasn't a business plan that everyone was like, okay, we're gonna open this nursery. It's gonna be a game changer. It was just like, I've got this little nursery. What should we do? He said, I think I'm gonna paint the uh, glass houses sort of dark bluey black um, or dark greeny black and I'm going to dig it up and I'm just going to put Hoggen on the ground and Hoggen's just this kind of red earth and literally 
I came and I saw it. And as we were talking, it was, I'll never forget, it was like a television screen just turned on my head. I could absolutely see it. It's like almost seeing into the future. I could see exactly what it could be, what it could represent. It was just really, really clear to me. And it was just like, let's just open a restaurant in this kind of garden center. Let's not do an afternoon tea. But also, I was still doing catering. The kids were really little. And um, I thought, I'll come down for the summer you know, suck it and see. And let's see if it works. So I brought all my pots and pans down. There literally was this kind of little wooden garden shed. Francesco put in a kind of little four burner stove in there. And we started cooking. And I remember we had a little blackboard and we thought, we'll just run, we'll just cook three dishes. And when they run out, we'll just close down, wash up and go home and (laughs) come back tomorrow. And so we did that literally for about a month. We had 12 little seats outside. That was it. And, um, sort of people came but we weren't on the A to Z and then what happened was a reviewer came and we got this amazing review uh, which we weren't expecting a review we didn't even think we were a restaurant so we didn't know how we would get a review you know what I mean <laughs> yeah, it wasn't yeah. even in our kind of thing and, um, and I think from there we were in the first year we won kind of two or three quite big awards and it was I think it was just really looking back now I think it was very sort of just zeitgeisty you know you know how things happen like that yeah. it, it wasn't a great if we could have I think if we had a business plan to do it, it probably wouldn't have worked out, you know, but we were just there. We were having so much fun. It was so beautiful. It's in a a conservation area. Um, And it was just fun to cook what you wanted and not think that you were a restaurant and then see people responding. And um, that's when people have started to hear about you. Then they come down and see you and they've got expectations. The first year, no one had any expectations. So most people just kind of sort of surprised and delighted that they'd fallen upon this. It was a couple of years of quite painful growth as we grew into quite a big restaurant where we sat on big waiting lists and it, the, the room was always full. And we moved from the tiny garden shed with a full burner, burner stove, but we only ever moved to Francesco's garage. Um, and we put a little secondhand kitchen in there that would have cost under £20,000 to buy all the equipment. Um, and so it was a restaurant that never, ever, while I was there, in the 11 years I was there, had any infrastructure built into it. It was just an organic way of doing yeah, things. Yeah, completely organic, yeah. And in terms of, you know, the ingredients and what you were using yeah. and how things were being sourced, what was going on? When I think about how it's influenced me, I think it's probably the 500-square-mile radius. You know what I mean? It's like cooking... Um, um, sourcing locally. Um, so we had a little vegetable garden at um, Petersham where we could never grow as much as how big the restaurant came became to be. You know, you would have needed a field of rocket and a sort of, you know, a half a hectare of strawberries. And, yeah. you know, the thing that that garden did more than anything was just like really put your feet in the soil and in the season. So we were right there. You could see it in the vegetable garden. And then we um, always sourced from um, as locally as possible, yeah. Okay. And I I want to kind of use this as a launching pad into the next phase of your life, which was going on to create your own restaurant, which is Spring. Mm-hmm. And what was sort of the motivation behind that new journey? And how did you see the identity of Spring? And what were your hopes for the food that you wanted to and, and really have now created? I just wanted to do something standalone. I wanted to I used to always, I suppose the best way I could describe it when anyone has asked me, I always thought, I feel like if I was a musician and I had one great album, it's like, do I have another album in me? 
Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Or am I a one-hit wonder, you know? <laughs> yeah. Because was it just because it was serendipitous and it was the right time? And so for me, it was very much a personal quest. Um was just about to turn 50 and I very much thought I wanted to do a business. I felt it was the last third of my life when I turned 50, not in a depressing way, but in a kind of okay. You know, I've had kind of being young and building a career. I've had the kind of the kids and raising them, working in now. The kids have grown up and what am I going to do that's really going to make a difference or um, is going to really fulfill me and what is important to me now in, say, the last 20 years of my working life, which I kind of see myself as being in the last 20 years, probably. And um, I definitely wanted a restaurant on my own, but I also wanted to... There were several things I wanted to do, and one of the most important things I wanted to do was to push deeper in terms of um, working sustainably, sustainably, Uh, working much more intimately on a larger growing scale than we ever could at Petersham. So I went to America and I looked at all these relationships um, with that restaurants have unique relationships with farms. Um, There are several, I suppose, the most famous and the most successful is Alice Waters from Chez Panisse's um, relationship with a guy called Bob Canard from Green String Farm. And they've worked together for 40 years. And... um, I, I wanted to find a farmer here that could would grow organically, uh, that we could cut out the middleman, that we could have a relationship that was um, mutually beneficial. And I also really wanted to prove that um, it's almost impossible to be a small farmer in this country and to make any money or to make a living. And really wanted to prove that we could work with one farm. We could get the transportation because everyone goes, oh, no, you won't be able to do the transportation, blah, blah, blah. I thought, no, we're bloody well going to make this work. And uh, I found Jane Scotter. Um, he's got a really incredible little farm called Fern Farrow in the Black Mountains in Herefordshire. And she'd been um, growing biodynamically for 21 years. I wasn't that aware what biodynamics was. And... Um, what is biodynamics, so, just for those who um, don't know? So bi- biodynamics is organic, So they, um, uh, but it's the Steiner method. It was invented by Rudolf Steiner. It comes from a series of six lectures he gave in one day in um, the late 1920s. And it's basically um, working with the lunar calendar and planting um, by the by the kind of the cycle of nature. People sometimes, I sometimes think it's the easiest way when people say, what is it? And I go, it's kind of organics with voodoo. Okay. But (laughs) it's not really, I mean, you have to bury cow horns with shit in it in certain days and there's only a certain day to plant an artichoke and another day is a dahlia day. And what Jane grows for us is so beautiful. And um, this is our fifth year in our relationship. And it's been probably one of the most um, deeply satisfying and fulfilling relationships I've had with another person in my life is our, um, because um, we work very closely together doing the planting list. We've committed to take everything that she can grow for us. Um, I feel the her farm has grown and flourished. She's now on her second new truck that she can drive down. You know, when I first met her, she literally had this truck that was tied together almost with string. She'd drive down to London, stay on her son's sofa on Thursday night, sell at Spa Terminus and drive back. And if it was a bad day, she wouldn't even cover her petrol. We've reduced a lot of the waste over the years in the farm. So the first year we probably started on 30% waste and she was really like a perfectionist. And she said, I'm not giving you that spinach leaf it's got a hole in it and we've learned 
to work with it with many things, which is our food waste program and the scratch menu. And um, we've reduced our waste. Last year, we um, we reduced it another 50% because we just got the statistics from Somerset House. But I think we've only got about 4% waste in our business at the moment, which what, is... What's the average, do you know, of waste oh in God, wait, Look, if you were in fine dining, it could be... 85% waste? No. Yeah. 85%? Yeah, because they're very, you know, you might buy in 10 kilos of mussels and choose to use four of them that are the right size, the right color, the right shape. Because, you know, it's all about... Presentation. Yeah, smoke and mirrors in many ways. I and mean, then you would throw away, presumably, yeah. the mussels that you didn't use. Yeah. Okay. So just picking back up on this idea of, well, I want to get into this in more detail, but how you kind of said when you first met this this woman and you were actively looking for this, that mm-hmm. it's almost impossible to be a small farmer in this country. Yeah. And I don't think that a lot of people actually know that. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people see, you know, British apples on the supermarket shelf and think we're doing just fine. We're growing lots of things. But can you kind of walk me through why that might not be the reality behind the scenes? Orchards were the lifeblood of England, and there were was at one time 4,600 varieties of apples in this country, and they were the orchards were as important here as the vineyards are in France. We probably would have there probably would have been three varieties of apples um, in English supermarkets, and none of them came from England. Why? Like, how has this happened? Um, Orchards probably aren't really viable anymore. That whole kind of industry has sort of gone. Globalization has completely changed the way we shop, we buy, what people want to eat now um, has really, really changed. You know, supermarkets are looking for a certain shape, color, size, consistency. They don't want any bruises. They don't want any nobbles. They want to beat down your prices so you can't make a living. I mean, the thing is, food has become way too cheap. Mm. Um, and I know that that probably sounds kind of weird and controversial, but food is, we do not understand the true cost of food. And that has changed for many reasons, but it's largely because of industrialized agriculture. And that really happened since the, at the beginning of the 20th century, you know, with chemical fertilizers and sprays and uh it's had a catastrophic effect on the earth and the planet, um, really. And uh, we 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 don't really have biodiversity anymore. We basically have a monoculture. So America particularly is a huge monoculture. It grows sorghum, soy, and corn are the three big crops. And they're either for animal food, feed, or to trans corn starches, corn syrups, to prolong and cheapen food. Yeah. In the 19, up until about around the 1950s, we spent about a third of our monthly income on food. We now spend between about 6 and 11%. So people don't prioritize food and people don't want to pay for food. But food was incredibly highly valued and respected until fairly recently. And um, our earth is depleted of any nutrients, any carbon monoxide. I mean, it's through industrialized agriculture, mass spraying and farming. It's, it's the soil, right? So I'm, soil. I'd love to talk to you about this. Mm. And it's super geeky and it's not sexy, but I think mm. it's extremely important. Mm. And I've been, you know, me and actually my husband as well have really been getting into this idea of what it means to repair the soil and mm-hmm. what has happened to it. And I think very few people know what monocrops have done, what pesticides have done, and what that means for the nutrients actually of what we're eating. So could you kind of in, you know, not without, not with getting too technical, but could you could explain 
what we've done to the soil and what the most basic effect that has been on... Um, Healthy soil equals healthy food equals healthy people. It's just really, really simple. And we have depleted, we do not have nutrient-rich, healthy soil anymore. We have a very kind of... We need biodiversity in order to have a healthy soil. Um, So if I go to Fernvero, Jane's soil is insane. It's completely aerated. It's kind of, it's, it's soft, it's caramelly, it's rich, it's alive. The things that grow in it are kind of are full of personality, color. It's almost, and I'm also working on a project, um, which is a hotel that I work with called Heckfield Place. And we're in the process of converting a farm uh, that was organic and then ch- chose to lose its status about 20 years ago. And we've, we're now converting it to bio- a biodynamic, 460 acres to a biodynamic, um, not only farm, but uh, woodlands, we're growing trees. And that soil uh, is its, its second year of um, working biodynamically. And I think it'll take 10 years to re- repair the soil. Is it is that because it's very dry, it's very um, compact, it's very flat. Things don't want to grow in it. Um, things don't die in it as well. That's the funny thing is these kind of weird little kind of sick little things come up. And you know, Vandana Shiva, I don't know if you know, she's an amazing um, Indian. She's a kind of environmentalist. And, you know, I, I think she says it, she talks about it so well, it's like, especially like one of the big um, agricultural and seed companies, a company called Monsanto. Oh, yes. Yes. And Monsanto started actually as a chemical warfare company. So they invented Agent Orange, all the things that happened, you know, the kind of was so catastrophic in the Vietnam War. And it wasn't until the 90s that they started a seed company, a sort of GM-modified seed company. And, you know, she talks about it. Instead of working with nature, we've sort of chosen to go to war with nature. So we will tame you. We will control you. We'll spray you. We'll make, you know. And I think one of the really beautiful things about biodynamics is it's completely the antithesis to that. It's just kind of working with we have the most perfect and natural circular economy in the world, and it's known as the Earth, and we've just interfered with it, really. And I think also something that people might be interested in that you could speak to a little bit is about what happens to food that's grown in soil with no nutrients. You know, is a piece of kale the same if it's coming out of soil that's been completely depleted as it is if it's coming out of a biodynamic, organic resource? Food grown locally and that's come out of the ground recently, obviously nutrients don't stay forever yeah. in something. So it's, you know, food that's two, three, four, five weeks old. The average egg in a supermarket is six weeks old. If you have a nutrient-rich, um, energetic, healthy soil, you're going to have, you know, plants that are dense in nutrients. And I get really frustrated and concerned around that whole kind of veganism that people are talking about. And now... Uh, Look, if you want to have a plants-based diet, more power to you. I, I don't, I don't criticize that at all. But I think you know you're not you're not going to cure the problems of um, damaged, depleted soil through becoming vegan. Because how do you step out of the industrialized agriculture that's taking place? Yeah. You know, if you want to eat a plant-based diet that's organic, grown close to home in good, rich soil, 
yes, please do that. But, you know, if you want a chia seed and, I mean, you know, if you want to have, you know, avocados avocados from Chile where there is literally no water anymore. Yeah. Or, um, you know, Chile is buying importing its water in now because the avocados have depleted so much of all the small farms that used to have their own water supplies don't have them anymore. They're importing water. They're (laughs) buying in water to the farms that naturally had their own water supplies don't have them anymore. You know, and it's the same with once you start, I mean, I just find it all so crazy, you know, that kind of... I really strongly feel that we have been manipulated and coerced by big business, you know, to... Uh, eat in a way that uh, they have told us that is healthy, which yeah. is good for their bank balance. Like, who had the genius idea to bottle water in plastic and sell it to you? <laughs> I'm not even convinced you need two and a half liters a day. No, I think you not. drink when you're thirsty. You know, I don't think. Um, or that? Do you think the person who created this? Am- amazing universe said the only way you can be truly hydrated is if you can get that coconut water from Fiji up in Scotland otherwise we're doomed if I'm going to eat a chia seed or an acai berry or a goji berry or a rosemary water whatever it is birch water whatever it's you know uh, that isn't going to turn me into a superhuman being no it should be mainly you know Michael Pollan says it brilliantly eat food mainly plants not too much I think people are very well-intentioned and very misinformed. And that's the point of this whole conversation, Mm. because I think that is, you know, we're getting fed so much different information Mm -hmm. about how we should be eating and what we should be doing. So I want to kind of take it back to spring and how you have Mm -hmm. defined for yourself what sustainable eating means to you through this restaurant. And I I know that you guys are doing incredible things with waste, for instance. Um, And I think it's something like 40% of food is getting thrown away before it's ever reaching. Uh, About a third of all the food um, on the planet grown never gets to a shop shelf. And just to also add an extra thing to that, about a quarter of the world's water supply goes on the third of the food that never reaches the shop shelf. Okay, so these are some staggering, staggering facts. So how are you combating that and how can the average person start considering that and and acting upon it in their choices? I feel completely in my gut that we need to step out of the industrialized agricultural situation. I I think we need to return to small farms, buying locally, um, eating organically, and that doesn't mean like being a health geek. That's just like eating how people did 100 years ago. Yeah. But, I mean, you kind of mentioned it. We're expecting food to be cheap now, and I can just imagine that there are people listening to this podcast thinking, you know, that's all well and good, mm-hmm. but if I'm not on a high salary or I've got a few kids I need to feed, how do mm-hmm. I eat organic and locally and to this level? Because, you know, if I go to Riverford, it's more expensive than if I go to Tesco's people don't cook anymore and don't know how to cook in the same way that they used to because I definitely think I mean I at home don't waste anything I buy every day like I know it's really um, boring I buy something on the way home or I go to a farmer's market I do a one pot on a Sunday my pantry is full of chickpeas and brown rice and lentils and uh uh, farro and a good olive oil and really good vinegars and um, and I eat a lot of pulses and grains. Yeah, and you can buy 
a packet of brown rice, organic brown rice, for about £1.60. And actually, that probably serves about 10 people, or either that or it'll stay in the cupboard and you can use it three or four times. You know, sometimes I go home and I have... Um, it's just rethinking the way we, we eat, you know. I mean, I, I, I don't have meat at home. Yeah. Um, you know, I went to dinner with a friend recently and he was going to order cod and he was like, oh, God, I'm really not so sure because it's gone off the sustainable fish list. Um, and the discussion ensued, you know, but what fish exactly do we eat? And then it went further than that of like, well, isn't it now true that almost all fish in the ocean have plastic in them? Contaminated with thorite, yeah. So there's no, there isn't a fish you can eat in the ocean that hasn't been contaminated by something called thorite, which is a kind of, um, it's a pollutant from plastic that go, well, that's in all your food. I mean, that's in everything you buy in the supermarket that's covered in plastic, you know. So so the plastic is leaking. Is that mm-hmm. kind of what that is? So it's leaking into our waterways. It's leaking into the food. It's leaking it's- into, our, into, our, into our food that we eat. What would you suggest? Is it what are you going to do at spring? Are you just not going to serve it? You know what? It's so hard, isn't it? Because um, it would be very painful for me. You know, there certainly is some some things that are more mackerel's quite sustainable. Mussels are very sustainable. Clams are sustainable. There are a few. I mean, most fish isn't sustainable anymore, and there's very very little on the um, on the sustainable fish list. Yeah, I don't know because it would really mean. Uh, that I would, you know, it's. I know I have to keep on going further. Yeah. Do you serve things now like salmon and tuna? No. Okay. So yeah. what are the kind of what are the fish that you're currently? So serving? we work with just two suppliers, um, and um, they're both from Cornwall. We only um, serve fish from British waters. We only serve fish that have gone out in day boat. So that's from day boat. So that means it's literally a fisherman that doesn't use a net. Um, you know, when the nets go down for a start, they dredge the whole of the um, ocean floor and ruin the ecosystem. So any and sort of deep everything. sea fishing, uh, any trawlers that go out for kind of, you know, a week or two weeks or whatever they do for, uh, at a time, we would never take anything from that. Um, we um, put a lot of uh, trout. We've got a really beautiful um, organic trout farm that we use. Um, I don't love farm fish, but this is it's got a huge bend in the river um, in the river test and they really are free and they can get muscle and flavor and a bit of freedom. So we use that a lot and then we use a lot of mackerel, a lot of um, sometimes they're not very popular fish though you know they're it, not. Yeah. I, I actually yeah. I know that if I'm gonna eat fish that would be what I should eat, but I even you, struggle with yeah, it. Yeah. And just to kind of come back to this very depressing point even the organic the organic fish you're using or the sustainable mackerel do Mm. these also have plastic in them they would do yeah but so will your food i mean the thing is you we can sink i mean the oceans are in a uh, obviously you know you know the statistics by 250 there'll be more plastic in the ocean than fish we like we all know that now but i mean there is i don't think all of us know it right you know but i do want to say on this subject i have a lot of hope so when I was young, people smoked everywhere. So they smoked on buses, on aeroplanes. I'd come over, you, back of an aeroplane, a 10-hour flight, people would be smoking in the back. And if you say that to people now, they go, they can't even remember you smoking in restaurants. But that was actually 2006. We yeah. was, until then, we were smoking in restaurants. And I think that people were going to say, oh, my God, you used to have single-use plastic water bottles or, like, you know, they, people won't even believe it in 10 years' time. Do not be falsely comforted through recycling. 
Oh, God, no. So the statistics in this country are quite appalling when it comes to how much is actually recycled. Mm. Do do you have any, you know, knowledge now of where we're currently at where... No, I know that, uh, for example, 9% of all plastic since it was first invented it was first invented in 1907 has been recycled the rest is still around only nine percent of the entire amount of plastic we've ever produced and the rest of it's just floating around mm. and, and, and land if anything that ends up in landfill it doesn't you know it never disintegrates or biodegrades so i mean that's the thing at the moment i mean we need to turn the tap off it's not about recycling yeah Well, exactly. So Mm. amazingly, Spring is one of the first, if not the first restaurant in the UK to go entirely plastic free. Um, And I think a lot of single use plastic, single use plastic free. So I think a lot of people wouldn't even know that that could be done, Mm -hmm. would question how you did it. You know, can we can you walk us through this and how it's been achieved? With hard work. <laughs> but in a way, do you know what I mean? That's the thing. It, it is really simple. Nobody likes that answer. <laughs> no, but it is really simple and it was work. But, you know, I think all things that are worth doing are, are you know, are quite a lot of work. You know, doing the scratch menu was a lot of work. Reducing our food waste was, a, a, you know, a lot of work. Very quickly how it happened was I met a woman called Sean Sutherland from something called A Plastic Planet. And she was giving a talk where I was giving a talk about food waste. She was giving a talk about single-use plastic. And I really hadn't thought that much about it. Like, it just wasn't really on my radar. Like, other things were on my radar, like working with Fern Farrow and, like, doing the scratch um, and the food waste thing. I was really shocked and appalled by what I'd heard and uh, and what she was talking about. I went back. I watched, obviously, A Plastic Ocean. This was in 2017 or late 2016. Watch the plastic ocean, and I'll. I'm on, you know, the Netflix documentary. Yeah, and anyone listening who hasn't watched this documentary, it is absolutely imperative viewing. I think to understand mm. the extent of the crisis. I think there's no other word that we can use yeah. for it now. And I think the thing that was so um, that really got there's one scene in it where there's a marine biologist. She collects this little dead bird on the beach. Do you remember? Yeah, I can't. <laughs> and she takes it back, and she opens up its tummy. And there's something like 46, there's no food in the, the baby bird's tummy at all. There's like 46 or 47 bits of plastic, which the mother has tried to feed the baby because obviously um, t- uh, turtles don't know the difference between a plastic bag or a jellyfish. So anyway, that was the thing that really stuck with me. So I invited, I said, oh, Sean, what can we do? And she said, look, why don't I come along? We'll show 21 minutes of a plastic ocean to the whole team at spring. So we organized, asked everyone to come on a Sunday. We put a screen out. We got beer and pizzas. We watched 21 minutes of plastic um, ocean. And then we got a whiteboard up and we brainstormed what we could do as a company. So everybody had all these different ideas. And um, obviously, we got rid of straws. And you know, people said, what can we do about our loo paper and all the plastic that came through? And so we changed that. And I think the biggest thing... And I don't, I'm not a, I mean, it sounds like I'm a real statistics person. I'm not particularly, but I think sometimes they're very powerful in what we're doing just to kind of like visualize. So cling film, I suppose, was our biggest thing. Um, and we went through, so we, we thought we, we've got to get like um, knowledge is power. So instead of thinking, we think we use a lot of cling film. So we went back over one year of all our orders of how much of industrial cling film we'd use. And we worked out how many meters that was. And we put the meter, converted the meters into kilometers. Kilometers were 800. 
So that's the length of Britain to the north tip of Scotland, end of Scotland. So where f- there's 15,000 food and beverage outlets in London. All of those 15,000 food outlets in London also used 800 kilometres of cling film. That's 12.5 million kilometres of cling film in one industry, in one city in the world. So we can, In a year. In a year. So we just went cold turkey. We bought lids for everything. I mean, that sounds really silly, but we used to use cling film to wrap all our old laundry in. If we wanted to boil a kettle, or, you know, boil a pot, or pot really fast, we put cling film um, can take up to over 60 degrees heat. We'd, we'd you know, put cling film on to, we'd, you know, wrap things at the end of service in lots of cling film. And we just was like, we just, we haven't bought any. We, we stopped cling film in January 2018. So we haven't had any cling film in the building. And I don't even notice that we don't have it anymore. So I think we got rid of about six or seven items altogether. And then all the plastic that we do have, you know, we've really kept them in the system, kept using, keep, kept looking after them. We wash all our um, J-cloths um, and we got rid of all the sponges that had plastic in it. And um, yeah, we've just, we use old rags, we've recycled, we've got rid of so many little things that we've done that are, like seem really silly, like... Um, it's just like, yeah, we don't use pens anymore. We use pencils. We don't use, um, we had to get rid, we championed all our, we don't accept anything that comes in plastic. So we'll return anything if you want to supply to us. It has to be in paper. And, and yeah. I think that's actually a really big thing is just returning things that come in plastic in terms of making a stance because we get it at Rev all the time. People, you know, even as a sustainable company, people send me things in plastic yeah. to an extent that you just wouldn't believe. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like we were having beauty coming with all the styrofoam, blah, blah, blah. Beauty is huge, isn't it's it? It's such a beauty, problem. Yeah. In fact, it's something, it's a conversation for another day. But yeah, um, yeah. so sending things back really proves a point, yeah. I would say particularly coming from businesses. So this this plastic epidemic is... Top-down legislation, and um, I think we need, and I also think we can make change with our wallets. Yeah. We really do have power. I say it to people all the time at work, the power of one. Yeah. Do not underestimate it, because do you know what I mean? Big business, listen, they're trying to sell you something. So if you don't want to buy it, they're going to quickly change tact. Yeah. You know, they respond to what consumers want. Exactly. So it's really important to uh, never feel like if I'm a, I'm a just alone and it's my house and like I'm a one little house on a big street in the middle of a big city, what difference does it make if I don't, if I give up my cling film? Oh, that's, you know, it. look, the power of one, yeah. one plus one plus one plus one. A lot of people assume that it's up to the government to regulate or protect us when it comes to the food we're eating. But mm-hmm. I think if that were the case, we wouldn't be eating things covered in pesticides, mm. covered in plastic, mm. being imported from all over the world. So how do we how do we change this? You know, I'm I'm kind of I'm reading this book right now, Rewilding by Isabella Tree. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a and it's, book. it is, but it is terrifying what's happened in the UK in mm-hmm. terms of what's been cut down, what's been... And this is not Lots a big country. As well, yeah. Lots of species mm-hmm. have gone extinct. Flora and fauna are, you know, just mm-hmm. going away. Is it up to the government to stop this from happening, which, if I'm honest, I don't think is likely. You might disagree. Mm-hmm. Or is it that the power of one could apply to this fixing of things? You know, how do we... I think it's we... a combination of both. Yeah. And I don't say that, you know, people talk about nanny states and, you know, but I do actually think sometimes you have to say, I'm really sorry. 
it's illegal to have single it, plastic water bottles in, in in England. Yeah, you know, by two thousand and thirty, you cannot have a deal. Or you know, whatever it is, we or do like need next to week. <laughs> yeah, but I think I think we, um, in Europe by two thousand and thirty, all cars manufactured have to be electric. Yeah, I think is that right? If not, it's getting there. In um, in three countries in Africa, it's 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 just jailable offence to walk around with a plastic bag. Yeah, I know. I've got friends that live in Africa, and they're like, it's genuinely made such a big difference, and that's what needs yeah. to happen because yeah. it actually is that much of a crime. Yeah, and it's being treated like this thing that's kind of optional right now. Like yeah. you are a good person if you bring your reusable water yeah. bottle, but you're equally not so bad if you still drink Evian. Yeah, yeah. Going back to this idea of what you, you're you doing and how we are sustainably creating businesses around mm. food, mm-hmm. you've also just become or recently become the culinary director at Heckfield Place, mm-hmm. which is, you know, sort of this, I would say, this just really beautiful, inspirational place of how you grow food, how you have responsible tourism, all of these things. But can Mm -hmm. you talk us a little bit about how your ideas for that business is evolving? Because I think that's interesting. It's a little bit more in the country. I think Mm -hmm. you're growing on site there, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've got, it's a very long-term project for us. I mean, my biggest actually and most important thing that I would like to do is to create an education program down there about um, farming and food and I really want to bring young people back to the land Uh, and so that's probably um, going to take the rest of my life to make that happen but you know it's 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 in increments and I think it'll probably take five or ten years you know we're in the process of um, in conversion at the moment at Interbio that's a really big project just in even things like it, it, it didn't have a body of compost there so it wasn't making its own compost as a farm and so we're having to build up the compost and by building up the compost we will build up the nutrients of the soil that's there so that's kind of really important and uh it's, it's lots of small increments of trying to um, to get the soil really healthy. And this year we've had some beautiful um, uh, fruit and vegetables that have um, come out of the farm. And then we're, we're, we're just um, finished a dairy for raw milk, milk, raw and organic milk, which will be ready. I think we'll have our first milk by November and hopefully we'll make some cheeses. And from there we can go and make butters and... Um, yeah, I mean, we're we're planting trees. Um, um, it's, it'll be the first biodynamic woodland. Um, it's got beautiful trees on the property. Anyway, we've got a biomass. And how do you see? Because I I love that you touched upon this idea of education and getting mm. people to reconnect. Because I yeah. think in the last ten twenty years, it's become very, you know, it's not cool to be a farmer. I think it's making mm. a bit of a comeback. But mm. I think as we've all become really urban like or, or more urbanized more cosmopolitan you know actually getting our hands dirty mm. in the truest meaning of the word has become slightly like less sexy but do you think that this see, is coming back or has I it never feel, gone well i feel a bit i i mean i i don't know but i have this i mean i said it to you before i feel very hopeful i feel so excited by all those young people out on the street by greta thunberg by extinction rebellion i feel that I feel there's a movement. I think there's changes coming. Yeah. And I feel it'll be, a. it's like a rumble now. Yeah. But I think it's going to be a big... And I think also people just don't want to eat crap anymore, I right? Think, I think people, I think people are waking up to how little time left we have. 
Someone said it to me the other day, and I think they're right. It is. They said, I think the earth may survive because it is so uh, miraculous at healing and renewing itself, but I don't think human beings will survive. And I really think we do have about 12 years, and, you know, that is the truth. And I feel that there's some really um, passionate, exciting, angry young people out there, and I feel really excited about what what they can do. And I think it's our role to educate people to join that battle rather than looking at them like they're crazy. Yeah, and criticizing, you know, I mean, there's nothing more important than dealing with climate change. Exactly. At this point in time. And climate change, it's a great big messy knot we're in. And I really don't think that you can look at anything without looking at anything else. So you can't look at the health of the planet without looking at the industrialized agricultural system. You can't look at um, healthy food without using looking at plastics. You can't there's not a simple answer. It's not one thing or another. It's like there's a lot of things that we have to start to look after and be more respectful around. I do feel hopeful. I don't feel negative. I mean, a year ago or two years ago, I would have felt, because it felt like a bit like, not not at all being the lone voice, because there are so many amazing and wonderful people if you, if you choose to seek out. There are a lot of people speaking about it. The last question I always ask is, you know, and I think it's perfect for where we've left off, is who is the person that's inspiring you the most and why? I mean, I suppose the one person who's inspired me throughout my life consistently from when I was about 18 is a woman called Alice Waters from Chapinese in California. And um, she's probably the first person who ever started talking about local, sustainable, small producers. Um, a guy called Juice Baker in Australia. There's so many people out there. Uh, a guy, uh, there's a really extraordinary young chef in London called Doug McMaster who has a <gasps> restaurant called Silo. Yes, I went in Brighton. Did oh, you? my God. It's, it was the first zero-waste restaurant in yeah, England, right? Yeah. yeah. And he's just a total kind of, like, he's a total joy and inspiration, and he makes it incredibly exciting. And, you know, I think we have to be solutions-driven, you know, and... Um, I think there's a lot of really exciting things that we can do, and there are a lot of solutions. You know, I mean, there are there are amazing materials that you can actually that mimic plastic now. You know, yeah. So it's it's not all hope lost, and I it's think it's not all doom and gloom. <laughs> and I think that's a great way to end my questions for you. But we always say, you know, last but not least, from the audience. Right now, and you touched upon it before, a lot of mm-hmm. people are saying that veganism is kind of the biggest thing that we can do. And I definitely have kind of, you know, I'm not an entire vegan, but I definitely eat mostly plant-based. Um, but what is your stance on meat and dairy, and how do you think that that's infecting the, affecting the environment? Look, there's no doubt that we eat far too much meat um, and it's like a huge it's a I mean it's a catastrophe I do believe with my heart that animals are an intrinsic part of a healthy farm you know it's 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 blood and bones returning to the earth renewing you know it's essential if you talk to any organic or biodynamic farmers they will talk to you about the importance of farm animals on a farm but do they have to be killed well, I suppose they don't have to be killed. I mean, I guess if you're... Um, I, I don't personally have a huge problem with that. Like, I, I really think it's an intrinsic part of um, nature and other animals can eat smaller animals or prey on people and we can eat, you know, if we eat meat. I also... I, you're going to hate me, but I believe wholeheartedly that um, fats are really important for you. Butter, milk, cream. Um, oh, no, I don't hate you for saying that, by all means. I think it has to be scrupulously beautifully clean, organic, in small quantities. 
if you don't want to eat meat, I, I completely understand. If you if you feel it's cruel to animals to, I mean, um, I don't feel if they're raised beautifully and have an incredibly happy life, and you, you will not make everything better by stopping eating meat. We have to attend to the whole problem, and that is where your food is comes from, whatever it may be, how it is grown. And would you um, say just eating locally is like number one takeaway from this from this conversation? Would that be your number one takeaway or? Clean soil, healthy yeah. soil equals healthy food equals healthy people. You know, and yes, as close to home as possible. I mean, because of the nutrients, apart from anything to keep the nutrients in. Yeah. You know, it's um, food that's two weeks old is not going to have the nutrients, you know. And it's not going to be healthy. Even if it had a vitamin in it, how can it be good for you when it's got all those sprays and chemicals on it? Eat food, mainly plants, definitely mainly plants, plants, grains, you know, a little bit of, you know, what you fancy. I mean, and uh, if, and not too much. Yeah. We eat too much. That's the other thing. Well, okay. I love that as an ending point. Thank you so much, Sky. That's this okay. was really, really interesting. And I'm so excited to keep talking about food because it just, it makes, it makes me happy. Such a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Rev podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe and send us any comments you guys have. We'd really love to hear what you want to know more about when it comes to a sustainable lifestyle. Each week we'll be dropping a new episode, so don't forget to tune in on Tuesdays. Thank you again for listening to the Rev podcast. Mm-hmm.